Well, good morning, everyone. This is going to be a long morning. Man, that was like a seven-second delay on radio or something. How's everybody? That's one of those sort of halfway insincere questions. Like, I really wouldn't want you to start elaborating on that question, you know, so... Just saying good and sort of the courteous way is probably what I was after. I just wanted you to know, I want to be transparent. I just want my motives <laughs> to be laid bare before you. Well, so uh, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and we'll jump into our time late again. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for uh, just another opportunity that you have given us to come together in this place. Thank you for the, um, just the privilege of Christian fellowship. Thank you for the, um, the faithfulness of those that have come here today, both in this classroom and other classrooms, all throughout this building, who desire to come and uh, serve in, in the life of the body, to come and study your word and to understand more of who you are and what you've called us to, and uh, desire to be increasing in our faithfulness to you. Father, I pray that um, as we come together both for study and for worship later on, that you would um, you would find us faithful in, in that effort and what we bring to that exercise. I pray that our hearts would be clear, our minds would be clear, and um, that you would just draw us to yourself in praise and, and worship and spirit and in truth. Father, I do pray for uh, the other teachers this morning, both adult and children and youth, that you would give them grace and wisdom and in, in their instruction. And we just ask that in all that we do here today, both in this room and throughout this building would bring honor and glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So obviously we're still in our study of Genesis. We got a ways to go. We were only in chapter two. Um, I think we're making some good progress through chapter two. And I, I hope that today uh, we, we get a little bit, we, we pick up the pace uh, through some of this uh, biblical anthropology focus that we've been in for the last several weeks. This is uh, lesson number 17 in our study. And um, Again, we are focusing in on what we've, what we've categorized as a biblical anthropology. Um, really, chapter 2, as we've talked about many times, um, as you get past uh, verse 3 in chapter 2 and you start into verse 4, uh, it begins to unfold for us what is essentially the beginnings of a biblical anthropology because the, the lens of, of God's creative work um, begins to get focused. So you're really zooming in on creation day six and God's creation of man and dealing with more of the details of that, uh, that wondrous uh, event that took place by God's power. And so, so we're really looking at uh, characteristics of the study of man, really. And we've talked about how a biblical anthropology would be in stark contrast to a more secular view of man, but anthropology is the science that deals with origins. It deals with physical and cultural development, biological characteristics, and social customs and beliefs of humankind. So it stands to reason that anthropology, from a biblical perspective, would be the, the focus of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, but chapter 2 in particular because of its zeroing in on creation day 6 and the creation of man. Um, we are looking at this from the vantage point of several key um, components of this anthropology. Again, this is not a complete picture. Uh, it, there's certainly 
There's more to come that, would you could, that you could put into the category of anthropology or elements of a biblical anthropology that, that would be flowing out of the text of Scripture as we move forward. And really, throughout the entirety of Scripture, there is uh, elements of, of really understanding what it means to be man and man created for God's purpose and placed in God's world. And, and, um, and so, but we are, we're kind of hanging our hat, if you will, on several key points that really flow out of the narrative here in Genesis chapter 2. The first one is we look at man's creator, and we looked at that on a couple of different weeks over the past few weeks. We, we dealt with that uh, specifically last week in great detail. Uh, the next point that we are going to look at in more detail today, we just barely introduced it last week, is man's formation. Uh, we're going to look today a little bit at man's environment. We'll hopefully touch a little bit on man's vocation and man's accountability. Uh, then you get to man's dominion, and then you close out this section in chapter 2 with man's relationships. And that's probably where we'll settle in and spend quite a bit of time because obviously it deals with the formation of marriage and family and really the building block of, of society, of, of human civilization, if you will. So that's where we're probably going to spend quite a bit of time in, in the weeks to come. But as, as we kind of set our minds around the, the text, let's go ahead and read the whole thing. I like to just get our minds around the whole narrative there in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and we'll just read down to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, starts with this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of, the, of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So again, we started off by looking at man's creator and we, we basically broke our our view of man's creator into two major categories. Do you guys remember what those two major categories that, that sort of 
encapsulate God and his nature? Remember what they were? God's... Well, that, we did that a few weeks ago. You're right. Communicable and incommunicable are two different categories you could use. But last week we talked about God's transcendence and God's eminence. Do you remember that? Obviously you don't or you would have answered me. So um, I, I, I got to review the notes. Again, I've got this luxury of being able to go back and look at this stuff. But, but anyway, we, t- we broke this down into God's transcendence and God's eminence. The fact that God, and you see this most vividly in chapter 1 in the six days of creation, because basically you see fiat creation, creation by command, by the word and will and power of a sovereign God who is altogether separate and distinct from his creation. So God is transcendent. He is not a part of or tied to or dependent upon his creation. He is separate from it. He is sovereign over it. And he speaks and it becomes what he calls it into existence to be. That's what you see vividly on display in chapter 1. And in fact, we looked at how in chapter 1, the name for God, Elohim, is the name that's focused on there. But then you get to chapter 2 and you see Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, introduced there, which also introduces a characteristic of God's eminence. That while God is transcendent, separate, distinct from his creation, he is also involved with his creation. He is intimate with his creation. He makes himself known to his creation. He is involved with his creation. And so when you, it stands to reason that when you get into chapter 2 and you begin to focus upon the creation of man and all the detail that flows out of that narrative, you really do see that God, yes, is transcendent, but he's also imminent. And you see this, this, this divine involvement in his creative work, particularly in his creation of man and woman. And this, so that's what we talked about at length. And we talked about, we kind of closed off our discussion with that about how understanding that God is both transcendent and imminent, and our need to hold those two sort of broad categories or qualities or characteristics in balance should inform how we relate to God in our, in our relationship with Him, both in the context of worship and prayer and meditation on His nature and reflection upon His works, in, in, in all ways how we relate to God. And what often happens to us individually in our, our walk with God or our view of God, but really in large measure to just the, the, the broad sort of strokes, uh, sweeping Christian, confessing Christian community, is that it's easy for people to kind of be overly focused on God's transcendence and that he is separate from his creation, therefore he is distant, he is remote, he's sort of in some ways capricious, he does what he wants to do, and sometimes it's for our benefit, sometimes it's not, but you really don't ever know. And so you feed, you ha- your relationship with God is character- characterized by distance. And a distance in a, in a, in a chasm of distance that is, is really never going to be bridged. Or you can relate to God in his imminence, in his closeness, in his, his involvement with his creation as a creature in a way that is really inappropriately familiar. It's almost like God is your buddy. He's your friend. He is the, he's the one that's going to make smooth things out for us, right? He's the one that, that's just going to kind of make life sing for us. Or, or the, just this, this notion that we just relate to God in a way that doesn't take into account the fact that he is sovereign creator God. He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And all the things that you could uh, uh, reference in Scripture that, that, that point to God's complete sovereign power, omniscience, uh, uh, sovereignty over all of his creation, we get too familiar and too sort of 
buddy-buddy in our prayers or even in our, our conceptions of, of this God that we worship. And so it's important that we hold these two things in balance. And even, in fact, the, the manifestation of the incarnation of, of Christ, God in, in, in God in man, the incarnation, he, you see this in, on vivid display in the Gospels. You see God in man in the form of Christ, and you see him near and in relationship and imminent, actual physically as well, but you also see him establish himself as authoritative. You see him exercising authority over nature and over disease and even uh, 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 theological authority, right, in his teaching and in his instruction. And he is, he is, he is sovereign God in, even in man. So, so we talked about how it's important for us, even as we look at this creation narrative, and we talk about God is transcendent and God is imminent, and we see this in, this, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 very clearly, that this ties back to us and how we actually relate to God. We, we relate to God as who he is, not as some erroneous conception that we hold in our minds. And we've got to hold that in balance and mature into that, that balanced understanding of who he is as we, as we know him more and more through his revelation. So that's, that's, the, that's man's creator. Understanding man starts with understanding man's creator, man's maker. And so that's where we started. Now we move into man's formation, and we looked a little bit at, at this yesterday. But when you look at man, you see in this narrative, I'm going to kind of just pull the two different uh, sections that deal with the creation of man and the creation of woman. I'm doing this a little bit differently. I mean, it, we, we, we could look at it verse by verse, but I want to kind of focus on these, these points and draw some things out of, of man's formation in general as it's revealed to us here in the text um, distinct, distinguishing between creation of man and creation of woman. So in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then you drop down to verse 21 and 22, and it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken... From the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So that's just sort of the tight narrative that we have on creation of man, man's formation, and woman's formation as it's, as it, as it's um, revealed to us here in the text. So we saw in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, on creation day 6, we saw distinction, even in that part of the narrative, right? We saw the, a, a distinction there in that text when God created man on day six. We saw a, a, a monumental shift in the text there because as the way that that creation narrative flowed out in Genesis chapter one, it generally followed a pattern, not, not exactly in every case, but generally in most cases, it followed a pattern of uh, God speaks something into existence or forms something, separates land from waters, draws the waters together, that kind of thing. He speaks it happens, and usually he declares a verdict that it's good, and then there is evening and there is morning, the first day, second day, third day, and so forth. But what we see happening in the text is something very distinct when you get to Genesis 1, 26, where it says there is this, you go from divine fiat, divine command, to this divine deliberation, let us make man in our image. So immediately in Genesis chapter 1, when you get to the creation of man, you see distinction there. You see divine dignity um, and, and, the, and, and purpose in the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1. 
You see the singularity of the species, but you see a distinction in man and woman, in male and female. You see also that there are no ethnic distinctions. I mean, there's no, in other words, there's no uh, racial distinctions there that, that God's trying to point to and highlight. That all the racial tension and strife that we experience in our day is an effect of the fall. Not that there aren't distinctions in, in ethnicity and that kind of thing, in culture and background, but the strife and the division that, it, that we experience is a result of the fall. That you see God creating man and he created a male and female. Those are the distinctions. It doesn't go further than that in terms of distinctions. But you do see this gender distinction. And of course it says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So you see this imago Dei, the image of God, uh, man being created in God's image. So you definitely see distinction in the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1. But, he, but it take, we go even further with that when we get to Genesis chapter 2, because I, like, as I said before, the lens zooms in to show us a closer view, and what you see is you see God's intimate personal involvement in the creation of man and woman, and in a way that's even, even more distinct than what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. And it starts off uh, with the creation of man. The first thing I want us to kind of look at is the, God's method and his materials. Two things that we want to see here that, that draw us into this personal involvement, this intimate involvement in God's creation of man and woman. Um, one Jewish commentator put it this way. It's as though for the climactic performance, the usual act of will in Genesis 1 was reinforced by a, an act of divine effort in Genesis 2. You see God sort of getting more involved, if you will. Not, not more involved, but you see the lens zoom in on actually what was going on in Creation Day 6 to demonstrate um, the, his, his personal involvement in it. So we want to look at the method and the materials. First, uh, with man, what is man made of? Just from the text. The dust. The dust of the earth, right? The dust of the ground. Now, the, what's, the, what's the verb that's used there to describe how God created man what did he do it says formed he formed him right we talked a little bit about this i think last week but this is the language of like a potter forming clay that's the that's the language that's used here there's this there's this element of 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 um of craftsmanship and in fact we have references to this in other places in scripture uh, we're even called God's workmanship in Ephesians, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? So, so there is this, this, this imagery in the language here of, of forming like a potter molds clay. But, but it's also true that our bodies are comprised of the basic elements of the earth, right? So there is an actual physical reality that's in play here too. And in fact, that's confirmed by science. Now, I want to read something to you. Um, you know how we've talked about the importance of accu- uh, appropriate presuppositions uh, as we started our study, how important it is for us to recognize that you come to a study of origins, whether you're looking at it from a secular, materialistic, um, sort of uniformitarian, naturalistic viewpoint of origins, or you come from a biblical uh, standpoint and understanding origins, it's important to recognize that everybody's bringing presuppositions to that discussion, even in the scientific community. Although the scientific community will often deny that they're bringing presuppositions, and they will, they will sort of set themselves apart as being completely 
autonomous and completely objective in their in their viewpoints. Therefore, the the things that they uh, determine based upon their scientific method and their research is purely objective and devoid of any pre-thought, any sort of bringing preconceived notions to the table, which is totally untrue. So I want to read to you, this. thinking of this idea that we have been created or formed by God from dust, there is an alternative view that has correlation in the physical realm to us being created of the earth, of the elements of the earth, but it's a little different from the secular scientific perspective. The title of the article is How 40,000 Tons of Cosmic Dust Falling to the Earth Affects You and Me. And the subtitle is Our Bodies Are Made of Remnants of Stars and Massive Explosions in the Galaxies, authors say. Now keep in mind, you and I, who would hold to a literal understanding of the Genesis narrative and how God created the heavens and the earth and us and all things, by the will of his power and by his word, we are often ridiculed as being, that's that's being so fantastical and so absurd, right? It's just just ridiculous for you to even think that that could possibly happen. I mean, there's a a level of condescension that that you might face as a believer because you're just not sophisticated and you're not scientific and and you're just, it's just absurd. It's like fairy tale. Like Genesis 1 and God being creator is often, resigned to the to the you know sort of the library uh, bookshelf of fantasy or myth fairy tale that couldn't possibly be but just listen to this article this is from national geographic uh, website and and it just, i just listened to it and you tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit fanciful and and hard to uh hard to just believe at first blush astrophysics and medical pathology don't at first sight appear to have much in common What do sunspots have to do with liver spots? How does the Big Bang connect with cystic fibrosis? Astrophysicist Carol Schribner, a senior fellow at the Lockheed Martin Solar and Astrophysics Laboratory, and his wife, Iris Schribner, a professor of pathology at Stanford University, have joined the dots in a new book entitled Living with the Stars, How the Human Body is Connected to the Life Cycles of Earth and Planets and the Stars. Now, clearly, you've got two major brains living in the same home. So, I'm, again, we would say their brilliance and their genius is a reflection of God's intelligence, right? So these are probably really smart people. I mean, you know, can you imagine? Imagine the conversations around the dinner table at that house. One is a senior fellow uh, and an astrophysicist, and the other one is a professor of pathology at Stanford. You know, it's a little, I think, a junior college out in California, you know, just not, not very smart people there. Says, talking from their home in Palo Alto, California, they explain how everything in us originated in cosmic explosions billions of years ago, how our bodies are in constant state of decay and regeneration, and why uh, the singer uh, uh, Joni Mitchell was right. We are stardust, Joni Mitchell famously sang at Woodstock. It turns out she was right, wasn't she? That's the question being posed to these two uh, brilliant people. One of them says, was she ever? Everything we are and everything in the universe and on earth originated from stardust. So at least we got the dust part in there, right? But it's stardust. And I'm going to ask you in a little bit why, why it would be that way in this particular worldview. Everything uh, in the universe and on earth originated from stardust, and it continually floats through us even today. It directly connects us to the universe, rebuilding our bodies over and over again over our lifetimes. That was one of the biggest surprises for us in this book. We really didn't realize how 
impermanent we are, and that our bodies are made of remnants of stars and massive explosions in the galaxies. All the material in our bodies originates with that residual stardust, and it finds its way into planets, and from there into the nutrients that we need for everything we do, think, move, grow. And every few years, the bulk of our bodies are newly created. And the question comes from the writer, can you give me some examples of how stardust formed us? The other one said, when the universe started, there was just hydrogen and a little helium and very little of anything else. So in that worldview, when did the universe start-ish? Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's how it started, but how long ago? I mean, even if it's just a billion, this guy wasn't there, right? So, but they're talking, you know, what, 13 to 16 billion years the universe started, and then four and a half billion years is when, you know, I guess the evolutionary process on Earth formed. I can't remember the actual, the actual numbers, but it's just like big giant numbers. But notice how it's just stated as like they were there. And this is, this is foregone conclusion. This is absolute fact. There's no need to question it. And by the way, did I mention I'm a brainiac that teaches at Stanford or I'm an astrophysicist? I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's fueled with presupposition. So when the universe started, there was just hydrogen and a little helium and everything and very little of anything else. Helium is not in our bodies. Hydrogen is. Uh, unless you put helium in your body and talk higher with balloons. It's, 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 um, but that's not the bulk of our weight. Stars are like nuclear reactors. They take a fuel and convert it to something else. Hydrogen is formed into helium, and helium is built into carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and iron, and sulfur, and everything we're made of. When stars get to their, the end of their lives, they swell up and fall together again, throwing off their outer layers. If a star is heavy enough, it will explode in a supernova. So most of the material that we're made of comes out of dying stars, or stars that died in explosions. And those stellar explosions continue. We have stuff in us as old as the universe, and then some stuff that landed here maybe only 100 years ago, and all of that mixes in our bodies. So, again, when you think about this, why? basically what they're saying is, is that we're made of dust. But it's stardust, and why is that necessary in their worldview? Because it had to come from something That's right. Their starting point is origins of the universe... Big Bang and billions and billions of years and colliding and, and fusing, nuclear fusion, and it just, I mean, I read a whole other, I was going to use another article, but you guys would have been asleep by the time I got through it, but it just goes on and on and on, and you feel like you're reading some kind of science fiction novel. It doesn't, it just, it's, it's crazy, and, and, but it's spoken with such authority, like this is what happened billions of years ago. And they're talking about things that happened at, like, the molecular level billions of years ago. And yet our ability to even study things at that level is fairly recent technology, even for us. So it's just, there's just so much presumption that's tied to these conclusions. Yes? When you say stardust, do they give any other definition of what that is? Because stars are made of stuff. Yeah. Like, what are it's... It's at the end of a, a long process after stars explode. And it, trust me, it's... I'm, I'm, it's that's right. That's right. So everything... So basically, what they're saying is, is that the Earth came from this, and then everything from Earth in the evolutionary process for organic life on Earth and so forth. So they're saying it started in space, and 
and then we got to, to earth and the elements of earth. So basically, it's the same. What's that? I, I just By the way, time out. Can I just make sure you guys don't start asking me questions about astrophysics <laughs> or, or pathology? Because I don't know. But go ahead. Because man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. The, the, the issue with, and we've talked about this before, but the issue with um, a denial of a creator is, is it's, not, it's not about science. And it's, not about, it's not about what you can discover through a, a true and legitimate objective scientific method or process. It's about men who don't want to face a holy judge and creator in God. And so as it says in Romans, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and they exchange the glory of an incorruptible God for the worship of created things. That's what, that's what it's about, ultimately. So um, it always goes back to that. No, and, and that's when you start, if you start pushing back on their presuppositions to the very beginning, no, they don't know. I mean, there's always, there's always like a, I even heard Richard Dawkins, I think I quoted him uh, a, a while ago, but I mean, he made some kind of comment about uh, aliens and, and, you know, on the backs of crystals that things, I mean, just, you're thinking, you're calling us idiots, you're calling us fools, and you're making these statements as though, you know, that's just, that's just one possibility that, you know, is reasonable and rational. So, again, we always have to come back to, as we start and look at these things, we don't want to get too distracted by all of this noise out there. We always have to come back to the gospel. This always comes back to the gospel. Men and women cannot see or know God apart from a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit by virtue of them hearing the gospel from you preachers and all of us telling them and witnessing to the truth of Christ. And by God's grace, him opening their eyes to see the truth and and, and they'll come to faith. But so we can easily get distracted in, you know, discussions like this and stardust and Big Bang and all that. But ultimately, it comes down to people deny God because of their own sin and their desire to not face a judge. That's what it ultimately comes down to. Well, anyway, I don't want to get us too distracted on this discussion of stardust. My point is this. When it says that God formed us from the dust of the ground, that's true. That's, that's true. It's just that we would not say that it was the Big Bang and stars and then the earth came from stardust and so we're all made of stardust, okay? So that's just, that's just science trying to put a little bit of like pizzazz around telling you about how things came to be totally apart from God.
right? But the, the methodology to get there is different. Yeah. We would just say it all points to the same creator. That's, I mean, that's right. I mean, it's, so anyway, I, I'm going to move on. Is it, okay. Uh, good, good questions, though. Good discussion. So you have the forming that takes place. Remember, we're talking about the method and the materials that are used here. So it starts off with man, and he's formed like a, like a potter forms clay from the dust of the ground. Okay? There's also this animating uh, work that takes place where God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, so man is, is animated. He's, he's, he's given the breath of life from God. Now, this breath of life, this statement is only used in relation to God and man. It's not used in relation to, to animals. This, this breathing into man, the breath of life, the, the, the Hebrew term here that's used. Uh, Alan Ross, in his book, Creation and Blessing, says this about this breath of life. He says, this breath brings more than animation to the man of earth. It brings spiritual understanding and a functioning conscience. In short, we may conclude that moral capacity is granted to human beings by virtue of this inbreathing. It truly is the breath of life, that is, it produces life. It probably is this inbreathing that constitutes humankind as the image of God. Now, we don't know exactly how that image of God in, uh, infusion, I mean, you start trying to you know, analyze the actual meticulous mechanics of God's miraculous, sovereign, creative work, and you're going to find yourself in the realm of speculation very, very quickly. But there is something distinct about this, this act of God animating man and breathing into his nostrils this breath of life that seems to be tied to God uh, creating man in his image and, and creating man as an image bearer. And you have a reference to this uh, in Job 3.28. that says, But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. So that deals with man as a spiritual being of, of rational understanding. Proverbs 20, 27 says that the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. So that's kind of a reference to the conscience of man. And remember when we talked about the image of God, we talked about how it's spiritual likeness, it's, it's moral capacity, it's re- reasoning and rational capacity, it's, it's a, a conscious awareness of God and of others in relationship and in fellowship. Um, it's all those things and, and, and more. But you have this animating work of God. So with man, there's forming in this animating work, breathing into, his, into him the breath of life. With woman, it's a little different. There's a little bit of a distinction there. I mean, there's the obvious distinction in that you have the, the, this divine surgery that takes place. But the, even the language that's used there, it's not forming, but it's, it's, it's a term for building. So it's, it's the idea of like um, a, a craftsman would take uh, resources from one source and produce something that is altogether beautiful and exquisite and useful and helpful. Um, it's, it's that kind of idea of a, of a builder or a craftsman. Um, and so what happens here in verses 21 to 22 is the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This, this word for rib, it could also, and it might actually be better translated side, the sides of, one of the sides of man, just the, a, a portion of man's side that would be a, constituted of flesh and bone. Um, that's just kind of a, I've, I've read quite a bit on that, and there seems to be 
you know, agreement that that's probably a better translation than just, you know, this idea that we might con- you know, have in our minds of just a single rib taken out. Now, there, is, there has been this fallacy that's out there that, you know, man, man's uh, woman was created from the rib of Adam. And so, you know, if that were the case, then why, don't, why doesn't man have one less rib than, than woman? Have you ever thought about that? Go ahead and start thinking about it now. But, but so there's this, there's this argument that's been postulated that, uh, you know, if that's really the case, then shouldn't man have one less rib? Anybody, can anybody think of what's wrong with that? It's a very easy. Don't answer it if you know it that easily. I want the people that might not. I want you to think through it. You, you know the answer, don't you? You know the answer rock solid. You know that, right? I think you probably do. If you came to it that quick, then do you have an idea? Bingo. Nailed it. Nailed it. Right? I mean, think about that for a second. So what you're saying then is that that passed on and genetically, that somehow that was a genetic, you know, whatever. So, um, but the other thing too, uh, physiologically, do you know that, that a rib can regenerate itself? I mean, it, it, can, it can grow back. Did you know that? The, rib is, the ribs are used, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this and you guys are going to, don't Google this. Um, but I know I read a couple of weeks ago uh, about how the, there's the regenerative properties of particularly rib bone. It's often used in bone grafts um, because it has such, uh, um, I guess, compelling regenerative properties. But that's not even the point. That's the more obvious point is that so you took a rib, out, even if you literally took a rib out of Adam, does that mean that all men are now going to have one less rib? No. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So, but anyway, I mean, that's also kind of missing the point. And see, you see what happens when people start raising questions. It's like you can get mired into sort of almost absurd minutiae in the text and totally miss the point of the passage. Um, so let's look at this for a second. So if you think about this, this method and even the material that God used to form woman, um, what, what, what are some significant conclusions we might draw from that, that method in that material about God's creation of woman? I mean, obviously, this is not written for us to, to tell a story about how, you know, the, DNA, the, you know, the genetics don't change from a rib taken. That's not the point of the passage. So what, what, would, we, what would we conclude from this? Why, why do you think God might not have used dust and done something similar to the creation of Adam. And one reason is because it's for our benefit. I mean, not that God needed to use uh, this flesh. I'm obviously the creator of the universe. could have used anything to create the woman too, but he's doing it so that he can describe that we're part of one flesh. Right. Yes, yes, and actually the, the, whole, the whole creation narrative is just screaming that. And in fact, we talked about this early on in our study about how e- even for those who might in, in good faith and, and you know, have a genuine desire to honor and please the Lord with their lives and trust Christ for salvation but are sort of feeling beholden to sci- the scientific community and might embrace a theistic evolutionary viewpoint on creation, uh, on origins, um, the text just 
just screams against all manner of evolutionary process over and over and over again. And so we talked about this before, about how to embrace a viewpoint like that, you're, you're, you're basically trying to accommodate to a godless, secular, scientific set of presuppositions. And in the process, you're completely doing radical violence to a clear understanding and reading of the text of Scripture and creating problems for understanding the Scripture all throughout, all the way into the New Testament. So we talked about that at length in the, in the first part of our study. Very important. Man is distinct, and, and it just there, there's, nothing, there's no hint of evolutionary process here, and this is an, another example of that. Um, in order to really um, sort of understand more about the uniqueness of man's creation and woman's creation and the forming of, of man from the dust and the building or crafting of woman from the side of Adam. It takes us into, from, from the method and the materials that God used to maybe his motives. I mean, what was, what, was, what was his purpose? What were some motives? And in looking at his motives, that takes us right into the other points of the biblical anthropology, man's environment, uh, man's vocation, man's accountability, man's dominion, man's relationships, those all, start, those all speak to what was God up to? What was his motivation? What was he doing this for? Okay, so let's look at some of that for a second. In answering this question, why did God create man and woman in the way that he did? It takes us to initially to man's environment. In verses 5 and 6, what does it say in verse 5? Someone read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 aloud so we can get that in our minds. Anyone? So there we're introduced into man's initial environment before he's created, and before he's placed in the garden. That's kind of the, the flow of the narrative, that God forms man from the dust of the ground, and then it says he places him in the garden. He creates this garden, he places him in the, in the Garden of Eden. So we have this description, this initial description of man's environment, and it's got some distinct characteristics that are, um, that are conveyed to us here. Uh, it talks about how there was no... Um, no bush of the field and no plant of the field had sprung up. And remember, we talked about this a number of weeks ago. But from this description of man's initial environment before he was placed by God in the garden, what do you think this might say about, God's, about one of God's motivations for creating man? This is, this is kind of tricky. Um, this is one of those questions that it, I'm, I'm pushing the envelope on both your memory of past lessons, but also um, challenging to think kind of a little more deeply and, and broadly about the implications of this description of man's environment, that there was no, no shrub of the field, no plant of the field had sprung up, God had not caused it to rain on the earth yet. Do you guys remember what we talked about there? Well, there was that. There, is, there does seem to be an incompatibility between the order of creation because by the time you get to creation day six and the creation of man, God had already created all the vegetation you know, in creation day three or four. I can't remember the order now. So it seems like that all of a sudden now you're saying, okay, back up. We're in creation day six where God created man. 
but there's no plant or shrub of the field yet? Uh, what does that mean? It is. It is. Now, let's, let's, let's tease that out a little bit more. It says there's no bush of the field there. So two things that, that jump off the page right out the gate. There's no bush of the field, and there's no plant of the field. Now, this word for bush, sia, or another translation might be shrub, and then no small plant of the field, a seb, which would be an, another word for plant. Those are the same words that are used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. Now, let me recall to your mind what's happening in Genesis 3, verse 18. That's the curse after the fall. Listen to what it says. God is pronouncing judgment or a curse on man. And he says, thorns and thistles, sia, same word, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants, a seb, of the field. This, this is really a reference to the the man's environment uh, that will come as a result of the curse. And so what in, one indication we can, we can sort of imply from this is that, and again, this is, this is historical narrative, so there's going to be some elements of foreshadowing to, the, to you know, setting context for what comes next. We talked about that. This is a huge setting up of context for Genesis chapter 3, right? We talked about that earlier on. But in the sense that... that, that um, that the Spirit of God inspires Moses to write and describe the pre-fall environment is an indication that something's going to happen. And what we can uh, adduce from that as we look, as we read on and we see that God places him in this pristine environment and then we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we see what happens there, that there is in God's intention and God's motive all along being that he is transcendent and all-wise and all-knowing and knows the end from the beginning, that it was always in his plan and purpose to bring about this grand redemptive plan that would involve sin and judgment and curse and salvation and man's heel being bruised, but but man crushing the head of the serpent and a forecast of the, the salvation to come through Christ. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. That's right. So you see in, in, in understanding what God's motive might be, you look, you look at the environment that he, the, 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 that's described here, the pre-fall environment. What, what he's saying here is that this is before man had to deal with thorns and thistles and before man had to, under the curse, work the ground and cultivate it to produce food by the sweat of his brow. Because what else do we know about this environment that God placed him in? When you look on in verses 8 to 14, what do we see there in verses 8 to 14? It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That doesn't sound like an environment that's going to require you know, extensive sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles, cultivation and work, right? That's like abundance. So in looking at man's environment, in the garden, you see God putting every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
This is a, a reference to God as being uh, a God of great provision, a God who brings to man abundance. His intention is for man's good. It's a lush environment, and it's marked by unparalleled beauty. But you also have some other descriptions there. You have some descriptions of some, some geography, really, right? You've got some, some topographical or geographical references, and that you, it starts talking about uh, actual geographic locations, rivers, right? Gihon, Pishon, Tigris, Euphrates, flows around the land of Cush, and it starts talking about these, these uh, um, rare um, materials, gold and, bede- uh, uh, and bdellium and onyx and all these different things. That's, that's telling us that we're, we're talking about a real place. Okay? It's giving us real geographical reference points to indicate that this is not fantasy. So those that would argue that this is, this is written in the form of mythology or fantasy or whatever, that's, that's a lot of geography to describe where the garden was, to, to, to have it just be con- confined to the area of, of fantasy literature. The point here is that this was a real place. It was a real point of reference. Now, a lot of people have tried to identify uh, where this is. What's the problem with trying to find the Garden of Eden today? It's not available. Why is it not available? I'm sorry, what? Well, there's something even worse than that, actually. Flood, right? So we had the flood that comes about that washes, I mean, completely destroys the face of the earth. So... A lot of people try to take these, these, these reference points to these rivers and the land of Cush, and they try to say, this is where the Garden of Eden was. But when you talk about a post-flood uh, geography and how that completely transformed um, the face of the earth in ways that we can't even fully grasp, all you have to do to try to start to imagine it is to go, and look, go on YouTube and look at um, uh, the tsunami that occurred several years ago or some massive floodwaters rising and watch what happens when a lot of water starts moving and then think like exponentially more than that somehow. And, and then you'll start to get an idea. We're talking about cataclysmic, you know, change. So it's a location that was unparalleled in beauty, a, a direct indication of God desiring to provide in abundant ways for his people and, and provide abundantly for man, a lush environment. Well, we're out, we're out of time, but we'll, we'll get into uh, man's vocation and his accountability and his dominion and his relationships starting next week. Sorry, I kind of ran out of time. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, and we're thankful for um, just uh, continuing to instruct our hearts and our minds as to your goodness and your sovereign purpose um, and that you... Uh, are not surprised by anything, that you are not taken off guard, that regardless of what we face in, in our lives and each day, um, that you are in sovereign control of all things and that you are working out your plan uh, to perfection. And I pray that even in this study of um, the first few chapters of Genesis and looking at the, the creation narrative, that you would just use this to remind us once again that we are um, children of the living creator God and that you have all things in your hands, and you sustain all things, and that we can fully trust you uh, with everything. And I pray that you would uh, go with us now into our time of worship, and that you would be honored in our time there. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, guys.